Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 31 for November MMXI. Episode 31 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Hi, doggy! Nice doggy! Here, boy, come on! Hi, Stella. Hey! Don't run! What? Walk away slowly. He tried to bite me. Never try to pet an animal you don't know. He may be lost, sick, or scared. You mean he might be dangerous. That's right. If we don't know, we leave him alone. And we don't get bit. Now I know. And no one is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Girl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are February's Batgirl number 6 and Birds of Prey number 6, both for $2.69. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, I had several people write in over the past few weeks, and some of them were first-timers, so definitely excited about that. Now, this first uh, write-in actually happened on my website, and it was in regards to my commentary. So here we go. 
from David Foster. Stella, I was very disappointed by your negative reaction to the new Batgirl. You, Donovan, and Josh all seem to assume that the DC new continuity is dependent on old continuity, which it plainly is not. In Flashpoint number 5, Barry Allen created a new status quo. We've learned over the years that whenever these fixes are made, certain bits and pieces fall through the cracks. Remember post-crisis Hawkman? No? That's okay. Neither does he. Barbara is clearly one of the casualties of Barry's fixes. Her miracle cure will probably be eventually explained as a result of Barry's retcon. Your approach to background number one completely ignored Flashpoint, which severely handicaps your ability to form a well-rounded opinion. Plus, your reaction smacks of impatience. Why do you want all of your questions answered in issue number one? What would be the point of publishing an ongoing monthly book? If you place your trust in Gil Simone, who you've been way too harshly critical of lately... She will reward you with a slow, satisfying stream of answers over time. I couldn't finish listening to Podcast 30.5. The amount of ill-informed snark coming from all three of you was too much for me. Here's hoping you take a breath and exhale before you record again. Respectfully, David Foster, Woodstock, New York. Uh, in, in response to this, I said the following. I appreciate you taking the time to write, David. Keep in mind that this was the first time that all three of us had read the comic. I did take a breath in order to more formally review it for episode 30. We certainly did not expect all of our answers to be revealed in the first issue, but the walking one was a big deal and quite pivotal if the goal was to draw in new readers. We did not ignore Flashpoint, since we have, of course, accepted that Babs is back girl again and that she can walk. I'm sorry that you did not enjoy the episode. I would love to hear your thoughts on Batgirl number one if you would care to send them to me. We, all three of us, love Barbara Gordon, so it was not meant to be snark. We were just emotionally invested in the character, and we were disappointed by the issue. I do not think you could say we were ill-informed, though. Just remember that this was way back in September, and episode 30, which just came out, shows my thought as of today. Thanks for your comments, and I would be interested to hear your thoughts on Batgirl number one. Josh Bertoni then came on and said, Hey David, sorry this episode wasn't for you. I've been there before where podcasts that I love are overly negative about something, and I feel the need to turn it off. Hope we can put something out in the future that you'll like. Yeah, Flashpoint changed continuity, and I'm not sure where you stopped, but we did address continuity changes, without saying Flashpoint by name, I think, towards the end. Our problems with the issue were more than just answers to questions. There were other stuff we brought up that made us feel like the issue was badly written in general. I hope you enjoyed the book, though, and like Stella, would love to hear your defense of it. Uh, David Foster returns as a conclusion says this. Thank you both for your replies. Believe me, I'm just as emotionally attached to these characters as you guys are. I bought the killing joke off the rack back in the day, and my collection number is almost 15,000 these days. My three kids look at my dozens of long and short boxes, and I can tell they're a little daunted by the sheer size of my collection. Where to begin? My 13-year-old would like to read them, but he's paralyzed by the enormity of the Enterprise, so he just hasn't. I bring this up because when the DC News started, I plunked the comics down in front of him and said, Look! All number ones! He devoured them, loved them, and wants more, more, more. I'm happy to answer his questions about old versus new continuity, but so far he's just enjoying the books for what they are, without baggage. And that includes Batgirl. As far as Babs' miracle is concerned, I'd choose to see it as a mystery, one that will be solved by Babs, and us, over time. I'm guessing it'll go about 12 issues, leading into the Flashpoint follow-up event, where all of Barry's mistakes will come back to bite him in the behind. And if Barbara is the detective who figures out how everything's gone all wonky in this alternate universe, wouldn't that just make her cooler? Anyway, that's how I choose to see it for now. I'm willing to be patient, especially if Gail is writing. So I really appreciate uh, someone, you know, writing in, and, and, and I do apologize if I seemed overly negative, and, you know, I explained obviously on, on episode 30, just how 
frustrated I was with the issue and how sad it made me feel that I was giving such a low grade and everything. So, you know, from now on, I'll, I'll try to to really treat the issues as issues themselves, kind of within a vacuum. Uh, but there are some things, uh, characteristics especially of the character, that are that need to continue from an earlier point. So while I can treat the story and everything as its own little thing, if I see Barbara Gordon and all of a sudden she rips off her shirt and says something to a man, uh, that obviously does not follow the, the characterization that we have had of Barbara Gordon in the past. So um, I'm going to judge her for how I've seen her and how what type of character she needs to be and has been in the past. But the story I'll be, um, I guess, a bit easier on. So I, I can give you that promise at least. Next, another new write-in, Esther. Hey there, Stella. I've been an avid listener to this podcast, and I remember Babs' both background oracle, be it the DC animated universe or the comic books from the 90s. Initially, I was disappointed about what they were doing to Babs in the DC New, since I remember her mostly as Oracle. Being born premature, I can relate to Babs' oracle because I not only went to school for people with disabilities, I had been sheltered most of my life, I got into anything comic book related at around 7 or so, and have loved the genre ever since. My vocal cords were scarred shut as a kid, I had to have a nurse with me daily wherever I went because heaven forbid my breathing tube could pop out at any moment, and I lived in NYC. Thankfully, with the help of numerous doctors and medical professionals, I can breathe on my own and have been for 12 years and counting. In the back of my mind, I keep reflecting on the fact that I could have been like Oracle in that wheelchair. We all could have, but I've come to realize that it's how you use that dark moment in your life to impact how you use it to your advantage in your own future. I had numerous friends who had MS, one of whom graduated a few years back with a PhD in something. Yes, I forgot, but either way, she didn't let her disability prevent her from doing amazing things like Oracle did. I have been and still am a huge fan of Gail Simone and had the pleasure of chatting with her about the Oracle issue up on Tumblr. Both Gail and Babs have been great listeners and overall great friends throughout the years. Gail, in my mind, did an excellent job with Birds of Prey in the last series, in Secret Six, and with Babs' Batgirl again. Wonder Woman, though, I really have to recheck that series. Didn't really understand the whole Amazon's attack story arc. Maybe that's why. Gail's writing is excellent in anything she does, though, and I'm glad DC brought her to write Babs. Whether you pick up the Death of Oracle arc or any other arc she has done, or the many times she has taken the time out to just listen to us, a lot of things stand out. How she writes dramatic or action-oriented scenes with her trademark witty humor thrown in, how her stories have impacted others, or just to put it simply, she can write a great damned story with relatable characters and believable relationships. Gail's brave and she's really a hero to me, and the fact that she takes the time out of her own schedule to see what us fans think on a particular issue she or others bring up. She admits her faults, like us, that's what makes her human. I love her for doing that. Her writing has impacted me as a writer in general. Whether or not she's a female has not really affected me because there are male writers like Greg Rucka who writes superbly as well. I can ramble on about how her works have impacted me as a person with disabilities and female writer, but in the end, I've realized that when you write, you really can do and be anyone. I have read and reviewed Batgirl number one, and I actually was pleasantly surprised at how great it was. So yeah, keep up the great work, Stella. I hope Gail drops by. I'll try to contact her so she can see this great podcast. Fly on, Babs lover. Fly on, Esther. And I would really encourage you to check out Esther's page um, and check out her, her Batgirl reviews, which are really well done and, and well thought out. H-T-T-P colon slash slash E-A-L-P-E-R-I-N dot Tumblr, and Tumblr is T-U-M-B-L-R dot com. 
Next up, we have Brett. Hey, Stella, just listened to your commentary of background number one, which I've got to say was spectacularly entertaining. Hearing the reaction as you read each page was terrific. As you know, if you remember who I am, I'm a long, long, long-term Batgirl fan, having read some of the Batman family issues when they originally came out. I had mixed feelings about Barbara becoming Batgirl again. Whilst I was looking forward to seeing her in the suit again, I love, love, loved Stephanie as Batgirl. I'm at a stage where I usually wait for a trade to read stories now, because I find there's generally not enough story or character in the average single issue anymore. However, a friend loaned me a few of the new 52 issue ones. I agree with you all that they dwelled way too much on K asterisk LL asterisk asterisk G, J asterisk asterisk E. Yes, if it's going to be in continuity, that was killing jokes, friends. Yes, if it's going to be in continuity, then it has to be mentioned, but it seems like they're making it the defining moment of Batgirl's life. In fact, if I didn't know the history of the character, I'd assume that she didn't become Batgirl until after she was shot. And who knows? Maybe that's the case. Maybe we're reading her first adventure. All in all, I thought the issue was okay, but I wouldn't want to be grabbing new readers with it. Looking forward to the Steph finale dramatization. P.S. The one thing I thought was missing from this issue compared to the Steph Batgirl run was joy. Next up from Brian. Greetings and salutations, Stella. Sorry I'm a, bit, I'm a bit behind in correspondence, but here are my thoughts on the last few episodes. Episode 29. Welcome back to Kimberly Rockmore. Crewmaster's new identity is Aaron Black. Do you think he chose the last name because of his experience with the Black Mercy? I mean, it could also be he wanted to have the same initials and a color-themed last name, you know, to leave a clue as to who he really was. I really enjoy Batgirl number 24 in a bittersweet way, of course. Unlike some of the other series that seemed to end rather abruptly, I thought Brian Q. Miller did an amazing job wrapping things up, and those pinups were awesome. Steph has a blue lantern. Huzzah! That core is my favorite of them all. So extra awesome that Steph was depicted as one. I'm looking forward to the Batgirl 24 audio drama. Uh, before I continue on, that is an interesting um, thought about Black, the last name being connected to um, the Black Mercy. I'm not sure if that's what uh, Brian Q. Miller had in mind, but I could definitely see Arthur Brown doing something like that. Okay, episode 30, Kevin Conroy, nice. You mentioned the shipper name for Dick and his girlfriend at Hudson University was Dory, similar to the fish from Finding Nemo, the fish with the lousy memory. Was this a passive-aggressive way to encourage this parent to be forgotten for the obviously more awesome pairing of Dick and Babs? Hmm, I didn't think of that, but you know what, Brian, that, that sort of works. Huzzah! Either Batman Family Number 6 got things right by calling them bison instead of the more common and technically incorrect buffalo. That, or you fixed it for them in the synopsis. So thanks either to the writer or to you if you had a hand in it. I honestly have no idea now. I, I, would, have to, <laughs> I would have to look back at that. Episode 30.5. Maybe the thug who was worried about getting a cold is related to Aunt May. Huh, maybe. In regards to Babs' inner voice and outer voice being different, yet another Spider-Man similarity. Spidey jokes on the outside when fighting villains to hide inner doubt and fear. As always, keep up the great work and continue to fly on Babs' lover. Cool B. Next, an another new writer, Enigma 2009. Location hiding out in North Carolina until the time is right to... I've said too much. First and foremost, hey girlfriend, miss you on the other podcast, but good to know I haven't lost you. One question, but oh what a setup. Uh, as many know, I've been one who has had a big problem with Bruce Wayne overcoming his paralysis, and Babs still in her wheelchair despite the character growing and flourishing as Oracle. And now we are here. 
she's back girl again. She's walking. And I kind of feel like a hypocrite because I feel it's a cheat. Not being a regular reader, I'm wondering if they're, they've given a reasonable excuse for this yet. Or have they yet to make up one and pull it out of their, you know. Anyway, stay sweet and I apologize for the lengthy question, but it's my first and I want to make an impression. Is it a cheat? Oh, well, I suppose anything really, bringing back someone from the dead, which has been done multiple times, from sort of awful state uh, or injury, I mean, all of those, I guess, could be considered a cheat. I, I suppose you also have to think, how worthwhile was it? Were people really upset? I think there are some factors that really go into to thinking about this. Number one, does it make sense? And, well, I leave that up to you, because right now, if you think about Flashpoint, then I suppose it does make sense. It's something, but but the killing joke happened, which is why it's so strange. I have no idea. Like, we don't really know what this miracle is, so it's very tough. I think until the, the time comes when the miracle is explained, I don't know if I can properly answer this right now, but... It does seem like it happened really, really quickly. If it were some sort of gradual thing, which it has sort of been leaning towards when back, uh, when Barbara was Oracle and she had the Brainiac virus and she could wiggle her toes, like if it had really increased from there, I think that would have, that would have made sense. But this is so drastic going from like Oracle paralyzed to Batgirl somehow not paralyzed. It, it is strange. I don't know if I can call it a cheat, but it is so shocking that um, it's, it's tough, tough to say. So there is no reasonable excuse yet, and I think it'll be interesting when we do finally find out what the miracle was. So I guess that's kind of a half answer for you, Enigma, but uh, just keep listening, and I think hopefully we'll all find out rather soon. And finally, uh, the final new emailer here from DWJ. I have seen several commentaries. However, yours had a certain charm to it. It had a great deal of insight along with the entertainment value, whether from the commentary or the movie. Most people wouldn't have the time to continue their podcasts at a relatively constant pace through their jobs. Many podcasts that I follow, I commend that. Anyways, I was wondering what are your favorite or least favorite gadgets that Babs has used? Well, I'm going to, instead of just saying Babs, I think I'm going to kind of broaden this to say Batgirl because I love Steph's gooperings. And it was just one of the things that I loved about Steph is that she could be creative and kind of just mix things up uh, like this and, and throw two different things together that probably ordinarily would not work, but for her they definitely do. Least favorite I will give to Babs, and that's definitely got to be the um, the weapons purse that she originally had way back when in the Silver Age. So I'm glad she is rid of that. I would also, well, I guess that's, yeah, I'll say that that is the, um, the last gadget. There are some great ones that she has, though, like on her bike. She's able to do a lot of things. She has a funky compact as well, which is able to do more things than a compact normally can. So definitely, um, there are, I think, more awesome tools than bad ones. So thanks to everyone for writing in. I really appreciate it. As always, you can ask me questions or send comments on episodes. Just send them to Oracle at gmail.com. Thanks again.
Okay, so now here we are in the reviews. So Beckerel Family number eight, it actually reprints the Babs Boots Gordon in Beckerel's Last Case, which originally appeared in Detective Comics number 424. So because I have already reviewed that, and guess what, my, my good friends Donovan and Josh... You can actually listen to that if you need a refresher. It is episode 24, part 2, these boots, dot, dot, dot. So I'm going to skip that and go into Batman Family number 9, The Startling Secret of the Devilish Daughters. Fact. Robin and Batgirl are outnumbered in this battle. Conclusion. The odds are against the dynamite duo fighting off this fearsome foursome of female felons. Prediction. Between fact and conclusion, you find it impossible to solve the startling secret of the devilish daughters. This issue came out January, February 1977. Writer, our very own Wetcher answerer, Bob Rosakis, Art Irv Novick, and Vince Coletta. Also included in this issue were The Adventures of Alfred Recipe for Revenge and The Blockbuster Breaks Loose. Uh, a fun quote that I pulled out, Hey, it's the Penguin in drag! The issue opens with the image of a plaque about to be presented to Barbara Gordon, chosen by the students of Hudson University as Best Freshman Congresswoman of the Year. Unfortunately for Babs, it's been stolen. Babs arrives at the new Carthage airfield, greeted by Dick Grayson, Dick's girlfriend Lori Elton, and some naysayers with tomatoes. The trio continues on to the Hudson U campus, where they are greeted by Chief McDonald, who tells them that the plaque has gone missing. Dick tells the two ladies to continue on while he showers out the rotten food smell. This is actually code for changing into Robin and trying to track down the plaque. Meanwhile, at an assembly, Babs is speaking when Scarecrow appears. Babs slips away, turns into Batgirl, and confronts Scarecrow, the Scarecrow's daughter? She tries to gasp Babs, but Babs holds her breath. Batgirl gains the upper hand in the fight, and Scarecrow rips off a mask, revealing herself to be the Joker's daughter, shortly before she runs off, explaining that it is Robin that she is looking for. It appears that she is narrowing down the candidates that could be Robin. Later, Dick, Lori, and Babs go to a special luncheon held for Congresswoman Gordon, where she is to receive her plaque, if it weren't stolen, that is. As some students at a table begin asking Babs about her stance on different issues, Dick receives a riddle, runs into the bathroom, and turns into Robin. He goes into the kitchen and finds the Riddler's daughter. She attacks him with a smoke bomb, shoots periods at him, yes, I mean the punctuation mark, and gets him all wrapped up in lanterns. He frees himself, rips the mask off the Riddler's daughter to reveal the Joker's daughter. Again! The mask explodes, knocking Robin's mask off, and the Joker's daughter runs off. Robin makes an impromptu mask out of a paper towel in order to get out of his current situation. Later, when Babs is about to receive her non-existent reward, a hippie stands up saying that no politician deserves the award. This hippie is then interrupted by the Penguin, dressed in drag, or the Penguin's daughter. Exit Dick and Babs. Enter Robin and Batgirl. There is a fight, a dance sequence. Batgirl takes the plaque back from the hippie. Robin reveals the Penguin's daughter to be the Joker's daughter. The Joker's daughter reveals that she knows that Dick is Robin. And Robin reveals that the Joker's daughter is really Dula Dent, daughter of Two-Face. During the epilogue, Babs finally receives her reward. The hippie is arrested, and Dula Dent asks Robin to help her join the Teen Titans. Wow! This has more identity switches than that issue way back when with Superman 
and they were aliens and then they ripped off and their face and they were actually Superman and Bat oh man I remember that that was awful and this is even more so my word she needs to choose one identity and stick with it so this is actually the first issue that Babs noticeably has green eyes up to now she's been colored with blue eyes but this is the first time that you can plainly see that it's green which is really exciting I do wonder why Babs is receiving an award for being a freshman congresswoman and why this plaque is deemed so important. I mean, a police chief is looking for it. This plaque seems like it's basically the equivalent of a certificate, which has no real value, but apparently it's more important than I think it is. The interactions between Lori, Babs, and Dick are awkward but funny. The first time Lori meets Babs, I wish there had been some sort of icicle speech bubble because you definitely got that vibe from Lori. But then, you know, all seems okay after Dick explains and they later go to eat together. I mean, both women are hanging off of Dick's arms and Lori is even joking with Dick that he has two beautiful women. Then we have this weird dance sequence with background Robin. One, two, three, kick all to attack penguins dot I don't even I wish friends that you could see what it looks like because it's pretty ridiculous it was certainly getting ridiculous with all the daughter stuff and then constantly morphing into Joker's daughter a little too much then she talks about investigating who Robin is and narrowing down her options and I can hardly believe that all of her suspects but one were in the lecture hall listening to Babs is this the first time she has spoken of this list because her methods seem really strange I don't really know how Robin loses his mask without realizing it, but having him make one out of a paper towel is redonkulous. And why, speaking of this epilogue, is Dula not taken into custody? And she's still walking around on campus. She says that all her activities were just jokes, really? I mean, they seemed a bit more nefarious than that. And couldn't she have just tried to talk to the Teen Titans? Seems really weak here. You know, I don't know. This just does not seem like a really solid story. It's like walking from my living room to my kitchen by going outside, walking around the back, and going through another entrance when I just could have crossed rooms. There are several times when we are told that the details of how we get to a certain place is boring and don't matter, so let's skip them. Really? Why jump around a story when you could keep continuity and flow? But overall, a lot of the stuff just does not add up or make sense. And maybe that's just the history of this Dula Dent character. Who knows? But I give the 6 out of 10 bats. And if you're wondering if you really love this Dula Dent and character and you want to make the Dula Dent podcast DDP, yes, she actually did make the Teen Titans team, if you were really hoping for her. Okay, so the letters page... Um, I'm actually going to take a break this month just because I think it's been like three three episodes in a row that I've done voices. So well, I think I'll take a break maybe every three or so and uh, just read it for, I guess, read it in my regular voice here. Uh, so the letters page from Batman Family Number 9. Of course, you know, if there's something ridiculous, uh, I'll be sure to throw something in. Dear Julie and Bob, Batman Family Number 7's 13 points to a dead end was marvelous. Elliot Magan took a whole batch of neat little storytelling devices we fans go nuts over, threw them together, and came out with one of the smoothest stories I've ever read. What can I possibly compare it to? Look. We open with Bruce Wayne, a clever way of using a cameo guest star to explain the setting via the phone call to Dick. 
That in itself is effective. Then cut to Dick himself, who, who proceeds to again shift the action by having a mental workout as he pieces together what must have happened to Batgirl. Beautiful. Then switch to plot action until the villain and villainess are introduced in a flashback and, well, heck, it's more fun reading the story than reading my analysis. I was very much in favor of your handling of the Huntress and the Sportsmaster. As super crooks on Earth 2, they're great. But as Bush League Earth 1 counterparts who are finally making it big, they were much more entertaining. And I really don't know what I can say about background Robin themselves. I generally find their solo stories pretty tepid stuff, but together magic sparks between them. Ooh, shipper! The relationship has depth and wit that I never thought I'd see in a comic book. They are the most honest characters I can think of, and certainly the most likable. They're clearly a business team, the friendly rivals vying for top billing in the headlines, toying with slyly spoken insults and rib poking. I can't think of any team in any film, book, or play that quite matches the relationship they have. A romance between them? Come on. Robin only wants to see if he can get Batgirl to melt in his arms, and she obviously thinks his macho act is the biggest joke of all. A camaraderie, an understood respect for one another, a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, oh dear. There's the real Batgirl-Robin relationship. In time they may develop a love, but it'll be a bond of friendship a la Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But beyond that, nah. Boy, you're eating your words now, aren't ya? Art-wise, Kurt Swan is the best of the Robin Batgirl pencilers, and Vince Coletta does some very nice inks. Swan really awes me. After years of drawing Superman, he's still great at making relatively normal people doing relatively normal things digestible. And by the way, I'm just crazy about the new background Robin logos. Who designed them? Finally, I usually try to keep my letters uniform. Part of my secret desire to become Guy Lillian. But I just have to throw this in. I'd really like to see Batwoman revived. Oh. Bob Rohde, Oak Brook, Illinois. The relationship between our two stars is a popular topic among our readers. Boy, is it. So you can look forward to further developments and upcoming issues, and more comments and following letters. As for the new logos, the Robin one was submitted by longtime fan Anthony Kowalik. It was then formalized by DC production person John Workman, who also designed the complimentary Batgirl logo. Finally, for a word about your last request, if it's Batwoman you want, it's Batwoman you get. But more on that later. B.R. Dear Editor, it's about time Batgirl and Robin had some costume villains to chase. I just wish they had been chasing them in a better story than 13 points to a dead end. I agree with this writer more than the previous one. Though I do really like the previous one's well thought out letter. But anyways, back here. Oh, do, 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 do. oh the Huntress and Sportsmaster make ideal foes for our dynamite duo. If I didn't know better, I'd say they'd been tailored to fit. But their outlandish schemes and far-fetched reasons for involving Batgirl and Robin in their quest for a mere ruby put some huge holes in the credibility of Batman Family Number 7. Surely one jewel could not be worth the time, trouble, and risk that Mr. and Mrs. Menace took to bring our heroes thousands of miles from home. And while the Huntress's gimmicks worked well in the story, trapping, tracking, and ensnaring, Sportsmaster's tricks seemed extravagant at best, added only to make the adventure more flamboyant and allowing Robin and Batgirl the opportunity to to show off their athletic skills. Characterization, on the other hand, was superlative. Batgirl's harmless digs at Robin, calling him boy and speaking of his delicate little ears, were quite in character. Something of a rivalry seems to be developing between the two. The teen wonder likes to emphasize that his seniority in the crime-fighting trade makes him the leader, whereas our heroine constantly implies that her age is the deciding factor. Scott Gibson, Evergreen, Colorado. 
Dear Julie and Bob, it's refreshing to see a team of heroes that isn't a playboy and his ward or the like. The dynamite duo only get together when they happen to be in the same place at the same time. However, the way your writers have been developing it, their relationship may soon be less platonic than expected. Batgirl and Robin appear to get along well, something necessary for a successful team. I think the biggest factor is the fact that they know each other's identities. Now, when they get into action, they don't have to worry with about dropping a clue that the other might pick up. This makes for a more relaxed atmosphere and a great understanding of each other. 13 points to a dead end is the best Batgirl Robin tale to date. The cameos by Bruce Wayne were nice, as was the revelation that Earth-1 has a huntress and sportsmaster. But my favorite part of the story was how Batgirl and Robin were each willing to sacrifice him slash herself for the other. This is loyalty of the highest sense. Mike White, Mackinac, Illinois. Dear Editor, Batman Family began as an uncertain venture, rather weak despite its intriguing premise. The question was, could Batgirl and Robin make it as a team? Not only a good team, but a profitable one. The issues came and went, and the questions were answered. The Dynamite duo clicked, and it was profitable, and number seven was an example. The running implications of a, shall we say, a May-June romance, they're just not old enough to qualify for a May-December romance, between Babs and Dick is outrageous, but in a sense, it's quite workable. There's no bond between Batgirl and Robin and their civilian identities. One is a respected congresswoman, the other a college freshman, sophomore? Babs has her work and when she has time, Jason Bard or her choice of other congresspeople. Really, she hasn't been with Jason Bard all that much. She's been with this um, Robert character. Dick has his collegiate study, and when he has a time, Lori, what's her name? But when they are in their costume identities, they click, despite Batgirl's cracks about Robin's youth. Interesting phenomenon, wouldn't you say? But it works, as demonstrated in Batgirl, Batman Family Number 7. The villainous couple were a pair of schnooks, or so it seemed. The huntress and sportsmaster of Earth 2 would be deeply ashamed at their counterparts, but these two make a perfect pair of villains to be pitted against our pair of second-rate heroes. Second-rate? I'm about to hit you. However, I think the time has come for Batgirl and Robin to meet bigger villains, rather than a set of quarreling spouses because villains like this, Mr. and Mrs. Menace, seem so easily defeated. They are morons, and the dynamite duo deserve better. Elizabeth Smith, Tacoma, Washington. Okay, I'm getting in my car, and I'm driving to... Bigger villain? How about the Joker, who is scheduled to make the scene against our popular pair two issues from now? B.R. Dear Editor, Becker and Robin team-ups are fun. 13 points to a dead end was no exception. The Huntress and Sportsmaster should appear more often. Are you serious? And Bruce Wayne's cameo was appreciated. I was delightfully surprised with Robin's growing infatuation with Batgirl. No doubt the result of that much talked about kiss a few issues ago. Oh boy howdy. I was even more surprised that Robin didn't tell Batman his old pal, mentor, guardian and partner that he knows who Batgirl really is. I'm sure Batman would have told Robin well I don't know about this and this really comes to play in the uh, the old TV series as well that Alfred knows but he doesn't tell Batman. I mean there is kind of this code and I think it's very respectful of Robin that he keeps it to himself. But anyways, back to the letter. I can only assume that if Robin continues to remain silent about this momentous secret, he has the hots for her a lot worse than I thought. Dale Kendali, White Plains, New York. Dear Editor, what about a little romance between Batman and Batgirl? Are you serious? Robin, oh my gosh. Robin would become very jealous of his father and, well, I'll leave the rest to you. What? I don't even know what to make of this letter right now. Georgine Freina, Trumbull, Connecticut. Well, oh my gosh. I feel like if this character were to write fan fiction, it would be slash fiction. I don't even want to think about this. We're busy trying to work out the relationship between Batgirl and Robin, and you want us to throw in a third factor? That's all we need. B.R.
Dear Julie and Bob, I really wish that you would stop all of this business. Oh, what? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I really wish that you would stop all of this business about a romance between Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. I'm not going to object because Babs is so much older than Dick. Age has nothing to do with love. My objection is simply that I saw him first, and if Bab wants Dick, she's going to have to fight me for him. Lori Elton, New Carthage. Well, I guess that would make Batman a fourth factor in this romantic triangle. Quadrangle? Seriously, though. All we can say is that you should stick with us in future issues as our cast of characters grows together and or apart. We guarantee we'll keep you interested. And speaking of keeping you interested, Bob Rohde, please take note. Our next issue stars background our first full-length adventure with the trio of guest stars you probably never expected. Mixed together Batwoman, Killer Moth, and the Cavalier with our Domino Dare doll, and you've got the perfect recipe for those were the battle days. And Batman Family Number 10 on sale the third week in December. Bob Rosakis. Man, before I move on, seriously, I just want to know if someone in the office wrote this Lori Elton letter or someone legitimately wrote in and signed it Lori Elton. Oh my word. Ah, uh, the characters that come out in these letter pages. I almost feel like I should have used voices, but I did need a, a little break. Okay, and Batman Family number 10. That was a good segue, yeah? So those were the battle days. March, April, cover date 1977. Writer Bob Rosakis, artist Bob Brown, and Vince Coletta. Also included in this issue were Bruce Wayne loses the guardianship of Dick Grayson and the second boy Wonder. The issue begins in Medias Race, which means in the middle of things, with Batgirl fighting Killer Moth. Cavalier goes to attack her when Batwoman swings in to knock him out. Batgirl's surprise at the appearance of Batwoman triggers a series of memories for Batgirl, and we then find out how both women happen to be here in the first place. In DC, Congresswoman Gordon is reading Batgirl fan mail, which her father forwarded to her. One question asks her why she does not change her name to Batwoman, which leads her to wonder about the original Batwoman. She then gets an invitation for the first anniversary of the opening of the Isle of 1000 Thrills. See Batman Family number 3 for further details on that. She calls Dick to see if he is going, but he says that he has his hands full with Laurie. He does tell her to look up a friend of Bruce, Kathy Kane. In the Provincetown airport, Babs daydreams about Dick, but quickly realizes that he is a teenager and she is 25. To distract her from these thoughts, Cavalier tries to pinch a woman's purse, but Babs switches into her backroll garb and quickly takes him down. Later, Babs meets up with Kathy when they both see a ginormous moth, a minion of Killer Moth, Batgirl's first villain. Babs changes into Batgirl and tries to prevent the giant moth from breaking Cavalier out from jail. Now we have caught up to the beginning of the issue and are back in the present. While the two heroines wrestle with the baddies, they are caught off guard when Cavalier grows into a giant. Cavalier and Killer Moth make their flight, and Batwoman quickly realizes that it was all an illusion, something similar to what is used on the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. Killer Moth and Cavalier decompress after reaching their hideout, and Cavalier reveals his frustration at being thwarted by women, even though he refuses to hit a member of the fair sex. It also seems that the target of the two is a U.S. Frigate Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides. Fortuitously, Babs and Kathy are on a boat heading towards the warship when two giant moths appear carrying Cavalier and Killer Moth. As the two baddies attempt to shrink the warship, the two women surprise each other while changing identities. While working together, they take down Killer Moth first, and Cavalier gets so upset that he lets go of his chivalrous coat and hits Batgirl. That's the last girl that he'll ever hit. Later at a carnival, most likely the one managed by Kathy, they discuss the end of the caper and the illusions. 
Babs asks whether Batwoman is going back into retirement. While Kathy enjoys crime fighting, she realizes it is not her life anymore and would gladly give her name to Babs. Babs wants to keep the Batgirl name in honor of only one Batwoman. Okay, so this is pretty exciting on many levels. First of all, this is Babs' first full-length adventure. Uh, and I think that it's really fitting that she's fighting her first rogue, Killer Moth. I feel like the female empowerment shown in this issue is really offset by the strange code of Cavalier and the conversations between the two baddies. Besides being ridiculous, I couldn't help but thinking that even in her first solo adventure, Babs, you know, she couldn't catch a break. I mentioned it in the last issue, and awesome, I got an icicle speech bubble from Lori when uh, Dick is talking to Babs on the phone. Oh, and speaking of this, you know, Babs daydreaming about Dick? I mean, who's going to be the first one to say it? Shipper! I feel like this seems inappropriate once you find out their respective ages. And that was probably the point, wasn't it, of putting those ages there? I almost wish there hadn't uh, have been... I wish, almost wish there hadn't been this long backflash, and it was a continuous story. The connection back to the present seems too choppy, and it's difficult to orient oneself. I find it strange that Babs looked up Kathy, actually. You know, mainly because she thought, uh, Kathy is thought of as Bruce's friend. And poor Kathy, you know, later thinks of Bruce longingly. But Kathy really only knows Jim in the Gordon family. I guess Babs, you know, is just friendly. But how convenient that the two rock walk right by a police station. The whole illusion gimmick seems way too convenient and is not really explained well. Yes, it has to do with the Isle of a Thousand Thrills, but how did they gain a mastery over those illusions? Is that the only reason that Babs got an invite to the island uh, or the Isle of a Thousand Thrills? So that it doesn't seem like a random plot point? I mean, why bring it up now? The team-up between these two villains seems strange and forced, just like the heist. Uh, you know, jewels or bank seems like a more common or believable caper, but now we're going to steal a, a ship. I can't really understand how the two women find out about each other because the panels are less detailed. It's three panels side by side, but they all make up a boat. It's kind of like a puzzle. And then you just see, like, them at the is after the forward and then the middle and then the end so the the one end they are Kathy and Babs they're running in the middle kind of like throwing off clothes and then at the end they're I don't know they're partially dressed I guess in their garb but it just seems strange like all you can tell from the speech bubbles is that they've discovered that they are Batgirl and Batwoman. I feel like these two would be a bit more careful in changing in public. That seems like a bad move there. I think that the ending was certainly the best part, despite the fact that Kathy says she has a new life now. You know, it's strange that she is only depicted as running a carnival. That's a great job really getting up the totem pole there, Kathy. But it was nice to see the respect between the two heroes, and I think it's it's nice that we see a reason for Babs keeping the Batgirl name, because I know a lot of people do wonder about that. But 6 out of 10 bats, not a terribly solid story. Now for the letters. Dear Editor, Batman Family is one heck of a comic. Case in point, the copycat girl capers in number 8. The action and dialogue provided by Bob Rosakis went by quickly. That's a sign of a good story. No bad moments to stop and notice. The art was superb, but what else can you expect from Irv Novick and Vince Coletta, the best bat artists in the business? 
The appearance of the Joker's daughter was completely unexpected. This has altered my thinking of the mystery girl, and I anxiously await the next issue to find out who she really is. And speaking of villains, after this series of evil offspring, I would like to see the daddies and mommies get into the act. Excuse me? What the heck does that mean? Catwoman's appearance in number 8 has whetted my appetite. Okay. Anyways, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Batman Family is one heck of a comic and the best giant out, bar none. Wayne Morrison, Route 2, Commerce, Tech. Wow, this guy gave me his whole address. I guess I could go to Commerce, Texas. And beginning in next issue, Wayne, Batman Family will be better than ever. That's because we're going all new in number 11 and spotlighting all the members of the family, BR. Dear Editor, I have long felt that the character of Robin slash Dick Grayson was not properly utilized. Shuttled from book to book and writer to writer, it seemed that no one cared about the Teen Wonder or was interested in developing him. That is, until Bob Rosakis came around. Maybe because it was his first assignment that he put a lot of time and care into it. Bob developed Robin into a consistent and believable character, someone who might make mistakes or get carried away with himself, but was still highly competent in his own right and not just somebody's partner. And so I looked forward to Robin's and Bob's first solo novel. And I was not disappointed. The copycat girl capers was a fast-paced, action-filled story with enough mystery and detection to satisfy everyone. There were some minor flaws, of course. The unreasonable coincidence of everyone converging on the Kit Kat Club at the same time, and the fact that Robin didn't realize who Catgirl was. But the plot went smoothly and at such a fast pace that you hardly even notice the few blemishes. More annoying was Bruce's phone call offering to help Dick, but since it was crucial to the plot, I can overlook it. I like the idea of Robin searching for a missing Batman. The reverse has happened too often. It was time to even things up somewhat. The mystery was presented in the same fashion as in all of Bob's stories, palming the ace in full view of the reader. John Dixon Carr called it when speaking of Agatha Christie. It is an excellent technique, even if the clue was a little too obvious this time. And I want to take this opportunity to praise Irv Novick's artwork. He maintains a high standard of work, which is ra rarely appreciated until after he leaves a book. Rick Peterson. 2533 Hillgrass. Hill Gas, number 305, Berkeley, California, 94704. Unfortunately, Irv has departed Batman Family to better handle the art chores on the now monthly Flash. However, editor Julie has Irv lined up for a Batman story, and more when he has time. But we feel that we have more than capable replacement in Bob Brown, who makes his return bow at DC this issue. BR. Dear Julie and Bob, Needless to say, I was quite disappointed at the prospect of no new Batgirl material in number 8. However, if you give Robin fans what they want, we Batgirl fans expect equal time. Batman Family number 8's cover wasn't particularly up to par because it lacked a background. Please try to make the illustration a bit more complete in the future. The interior art was pleasing, and though Vince Coletta keeps topping himself with each job he does, I would prefer to see other inkers over Irv Novick's pencils. The script was well done, and Batman fit it well, though I was glad to see his part kept at a minimum. I was also pleased to see Catwoman worked into the story. It was unexpected, so it was a real treat. I hope she'll be popping up again. Scott R. Taylor, 103 Markham, Portland, Texas, 78374. Popular villains never stay out of circulation for long, and though we won't say just where, you can be sure the Queen of Crime will be popping again soon. B.R. Dear Editor, the reprints in number 8 were 50-50. I liked the Batgirl tale, but hated the Spinner story. How about reprinting some of your latter-day classics in BF? I'm, plenty, I'm sure plenty of readers would like to see them again. Steve Pick, 5575, 
Winchelsea Drive, Normandy, Missouri, 63121. As we said earlier, the classic reprints have been phased out of Batman Family, which gives us the opportunity to announce that in addition to the background Robin adventure next-ish, we'll have a mystery starring Alfred and Commissioner Gordon, and the startling return of Man Bat. It's all in BF number 11, on sale the last week in February. Bob Rosakis. But you don't have to wait until February on this show you just have to wait until december next month when i'll be doing 11 and maybe 12 and boy will that episode be jam happy because guess what people next month is the second year anniversary of bto and i'm gonna have some special guest stars and some kind of fun stuff going on so i hope you uh hope you get it really excited for it well i'm gonna take a break because i am tired and uh, when I come back, I will review Batgirl number two, Birds of Prey number two, and Hunters number two. But now, Zias's Radio Hour, featuring Tomorrow Never Dies by Cheryl Crow.
welcome back. It's good to see you again. Take your coat off, sit down, stay a while. First up, we've got Batgirl number two, Cut Short, Cut Deep. Writer Gail Simone, Pensor Ardiencioff, Inker Vicente Cifuentes, and colorist Ulysses Arioa. As the issue begins, we see Detective McKenna, Mirror, and Batgirl all standing in a destroyed hospital room. Batgirl berates herself silently, McKenna threatens Mirror, and Mirror decides to be a nice person and let McKenna live, if only because she's not on the list. Batgirl vows she will never again hesitate as she leaps out the window after Mirror. Batgirl gets a drop of Mirror, but somehow muddles it up. Babs lands on a gargoyle as Mirror hangs off of it. She reaches for Mirror to help him up, but he throws her off, stating that she is on the oft-repeated list that we have yet to see. Batgirl does some quick calculations, launches a line, saves herself with the gargoyle again, but her arc is low enough to throw her into a cab. An angry cab woman who is reminiscent of Kathy Bates yells at her as she stumbles up through the pain. The scene then switches back to the hospital, where Detective McKenna is getting checked out. She wants to continue to look for Mirror and fights with an orderly when Commissioner Gordon walks in. Gordon comforts her in the same breath that he tells her she needs to take a bereavement leave. Before Gordon leaves, McKenna tells him that they are going to need warrants not only for the Mirror, but for Batgirl, who has returned. Cue the surprise music. Presumably the same night, Batgirl finds her way to the Hollows, a Gotham cemetery, and drops in on the Mirror about to pay his respects. Batgirl gets some choice hits in, but gets a little too confident and takes a bad hit, thus realizing the strength of her foe. The mirror finally flashes Batgirl, but it does not seem to phase her as he would expect. After Batgirl muses that she can't die because she has a lunch date the next day, she gets to work, getting in some hits and avoiding as many of his as possible. She realizes that she is not Batman, so she cannot outfight him, but she is smart, so she's going to outthink him. She plays Artful Dodger and grabs the list from him. As the sounds of sirens come to them, the mirror grabs back the list and leaves Batgirl keeled over trying to catch her breath. Batgirl walks back to her new apartment, since she cannot go back to her bike at the hospital. She's greeted by an angry Elysia with a bat and collapses in her arms. GBG wakes up in Elysia's bed with taped ribs, because Elysia really is actually Crystal Brown, gets a lecture, assures her roommate that she is okay, and then asks Elysia if she can borrow something cute. Looks like it was a good decision, as her date even comments on the outfit. It is the first date between Babs and her physical therapist, Gregor, who seems to think it is unethical to see each other socially. Babs takes the lead on the date, since she asked him, and they both go to the park. Gregor asks Babs about getting the use of her legs back, and Babs lets slip her skepticism regarding miracles. Why should she be the one who receives a miracle? Why can she not answer the important questions surrounding this turn of events? This gets Gregor a little upset, but the date seems to turn out okay overall. We then see Babs at the public library, home sweet home, trying to figure out the identity of the mirror. She uses the clues that he has given her, I don't really understand either, to discover that he is a Mr. Mills, a hero who lost his family in a tragic car accident. Goes to his place, finds an armory, gets a greeting and some exposition from Mirror, who appears on a screen, figures out that Mirror just wants his life to end because he feels he doesn't deserve the second chance at life, and then hears that Mirror is out to kill anyone who should have died. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is Final Destination 7. To rectify one life that should have been terminated, he has planted a bomb on a subway train. Okay, well, this issue 
does not really seem to pick up right where we left off. All of a sudden, the detective is more interested in Mirror, which quite rightly, that, that makes sense, than Batgirl, whereas before, it was the opposite was true. I wonder if this McKenna will be a recurring character almost in the vein of Detective Ellen Yin from The Batman. Uh, she was not a fan of The Batman until he won her over very late. That was like season... the end of season two or so? Uh, actually, sorry. The end of season one, beginning of season two. Could we be going down that road here? I'm getting mixed messages from Mir. He will not kill Detective Kenna because she's not on the list, and yet he killed a security officer outside the hospital room and McKenna's partner. Those people weren't on the list. So a lot of this issue revolves around Babs really getting her legs back. This is certainly realistic to a certain extent, but it almost seems as if this is literally the first night that she's been able to walk. I doubt that this is true, even though this may be Babs' first night as Batgirl, or back as Batgirl, I guess. She had to have already been working on strengthening her legs in physical therapy. But still, I would like to know how long Babs has been able to walk in order to correctly judge this situation. Something that I am still used to in the Silver Age uh, is that she underestimates herself and is even dubious of her abilities, and I really don't like that. You know, she's also comparing herself to Batman. That doesn't really seem like the, the Barbara Gordon that I'm used to. The intelligence level of Babs vacillates. She seems easily duped by Mirror into pulling him up from the gargoyle, yet she is able to calculate some physics equations on the fly, literally. I do wonder a few things as I read this issue, including whether her father still knows that she was Batgirl once, given the shocked look that he gives once McKenna tells him Batgirl has returned, I would say that he does, and whether Babs knows the identity of Batman, because that's sort of an undefined area right now as well. I don't really understand how Babs knows how to go to the cemetery to find Mirror again, nor do I think it's reasonable to think that Babs would take Mirror's comment about a flamethrower to mean that it connects with his death, or I guess the death of his family, rather. I do like the turn the cemetery fight takes when Babs finally starts thinking, though I don't think that the first thought that would pop into her head would be, I can't die, I have a day tomorrow. Ah, yes. Roommate hijinks. Alicia equals Michelle Gonzalez. The baseball bat equals the shotgun. And you people who have read Amazing Spider-Man, you know what I'm talking about. I don't really know what to think about all this. We are obviously supposed to approve of this budding friendship, but I would much rather appreciate seeing Babs get along by herself. Babs seems really weak right now, you know, someone who cannot get a proper footing in her life. And then we have Babs as the forward woman, asking her physical therapist out, not caring about the ethical issues involved. Now, you know, obviously I ship Dick and Babs. This is no surprise to any of you out there. So it won't come as too much of a shock when I say I don't really like this budding romance. But the real reason I don't like it is because we're being introduced to too many minor characters. And I would really like to know who Babs is first. I mean, it's her book. Who is she? Tell me that before you go on and throw all these people at me. I'm quite baffled still about this continual talk of the miracle. Babs doesn't believe in them, doesn't think she deserves it. We do learn a little bit about Babs from this discussion, namely that even she is clueless in regards to this miracle. But we also seem to learn about Gregor, since he obviously seems bothered by this talk. Did he have some sort of miracle happen to him? Was he at some point disabled? Is he Jason Bard? Who knows? 
I like seeing Babs at the library, but I wish she could have been there longer, allowing us the opportunity of seeing her really find the information she was looking for, perhaps instead of having Mirror narrate his life story. The Mirror story seems more intriguing than when last we saw him, uh, yet I still can't get this final destination out of my head. As a random aside, I, I do find it amusing that one panel shows a train car having graffiti on it that says Professor Stein is alive, you know, an obvious reference to Firestorm. Overall, I thought that this issue was both better and worse than the last issue. I feel like Babs is getting closer to the voice that we would expect for her, but her character is still off. Many moments seem like there was something missing, as if we went from A to C in hopes that we already knew B or could catch on quickly. And this, you know, it's certainly not the case for a comic that is uh, starting off, and it shouldn't be the case. Again, I think that too many characters or issues are being introduced that need to be shelved until we know slash understand the character of Babs slash Batgirl. The main issue should be seeing Batgirl get used to her legs again and really understanding the basis of this miracle. So I give this 5.5 out of 10 bats. Next up, Birds of Prey, number two, Trouble in Mind. Writer, Dwayne Sprzynski. Artist, Jesus Saez. Colors, Alan Pasalaqua. The comic opens in Japan with Katana slicing, dicing, and talking to her invisible friend. More on that later. Katana tells her friend that she will indeed go to Gotham City. Back at Gotham International Airport, where we last left our two birds, Dinah brings us up to speed as to what just happened as she dusts herself off and vows vengeance for the death of Charlie Keene. Ev suggests they leave, while Dinah asks for a distraction. She gets a quick ten seconds, while she looks for some evidence. Ev goes to work, faints, and snatches a security guard's keys, while Dinah narrates how Ev is a great strategist, and ten seconds means ten seconds, picks up a piece of Charlie Keene, yeah, a piece, and his cell phone, and hops into an airport security car, or should I say cart, driven by Ev. As they speed away, chased by some other cart, we see the translucent figure from the first issue, commenting on the scene to someone unknown. Ev drives the cart straight out of a terminal window, déjà vu, and we then find ourselves at the Gotham Cemetery, three days later. Ev speaks to Keane's widow, who has heard on the news that Charlie committed suicide due to the failing news industry. She does not believe the reports, nor the allegations of drinking and breakdowns. Ev and Black Canary discuss what could have triggered the explosion as they make their way to a temporary base of operations. There they are met by Katana, who seems to be talking to the soul of her husband housed in her sword. Ev is bewildered, not knowing the whole truth, and Dinah does not want to be the one to tell her what is going on. In the meantime, Dinah has to meet one of Ev's sources, this one being a neurochemical researcher, killing two birds with one stone. It looks like Ev has tried to set Dinah up. The Ricky Martin lookalike tells Dinah about a drug that showed up in Keene. The drug helps people who have had strokes, teaching the brain to reconnect pathways. It seems that certain words fire up specific responses in the brain. Ricky Martin then asks if the drug currently in testing is in high demand, as four of the five labs that have been producing it have been broken into. The fifth is nearby. Looks like a job for a ragtag bunch of hero felons. Black Canary, Starling, and Katana go to the lab and look around, barely getting too far inside when Dinah sees one of the Reaper knockoffs and a bunch more appear. Katana makes shish kebabs, the bad guys are told to take Dinah and kill the rest, and Dinah shocks Katana with her use of her canary cry. Starling captures Donovan Morgan Grant. You have a little something on your face there, Don. What is that? Oh, yeah, it's blood. Poison Ivy randomly appears. Starling is ready to kick some plant A asterisk asterisk. And Dinah shocks everyone by revealing that she invited Ivy to be on the team. Bum, bum, bum. 
So, just like Snyder's Batman number two, which I recommend reading, by the way, Bird starts off with a scene which doesn't make sense until you read further. At first, I thought that Katana was talking to the people she was killing, and frankly, I didn't really understand why she was slicing and dicing in the first place. I like that the two current members of the Birds have differing ways of going about things. You know, Ev wants to split right away from the, the, the bomb scene, and Dinah knows that it would be smart to at least collect some evidence. I have to say that this is actually some really smart thinking on Dinah's part, and perhaps too smart for the character. Perhaps she's channeling some babs? Dinah seems a little too emotionally invested in a person whom she barely knew. I mean, she can feel sad and want to find out what happened, but does she really need to make a pledge to bring his killer to justice? Seems a little little much. Ev's scene is comical, but we're made to take it seriously, which is tough because she does not seem like one of the best strategists in the world. I do question why someone would choose to take the keys to a cart. It's like something straight out of Austin Powers. I like how there are references to the previous issue, with Dinah wondering if Ev is going to destroy buildings with motor vehicles all the time. And the scene with the widow is short, and I feel like it really doesn't serve too great a purpose here, except to let us know, you know, the news surrounding Keen's death. I really like the scene with Dinah, Ev, and Katana. I thought it was well written, and we learn a lot from it in regards to the characters involved. Dinah's comments regarding Batman's, his his. I was going to say Fortress of Solitude, but his Batcave also kind of illuminate the fact that Dinah must not be very close to the dark right now, right now and probably doesn't even know his actual identity. Ah, uh, yes, romantic hijinks. Dinah and Dr. Cahill. I'm somewhat confused by this scene, mainly because Dinah makes it seem as if she and Ev have known each other a long time. And she says Ev has tried to set her up before. While they may have known of each other for a little while, I feel like the last issue made it seem like the friendship between the two was rather new, not long enough for Ev to be staging blind dates. P.S. I never want to hear Dinah say, he asked you out, you tell him you're dating Ev again. P.P.S. I will be extremely upset if this ever comes to pass. Again, we have Dinah really using her brains and being perceptive in the warehouse, seeing some visual disturbance and picking up on it. Seriously, though, is Dinah, Black Canary, and Oracle combined? The greatest problem I have with the issue is the following. Two-thirds of the members are attacking with lethal force, and Black Canary, the only one not aiming to kill, is fine with it? And is even happy to have Katana's lethal skill on the team? Canary is not like Huntress. She always walks on the correct side of the moral line, and to have teammates that kill rather than incapacitate and being okay with that seems like an incorrect characterization. I do like that not everyone knows that Dinah is a metahuman. I thought that was pretty interesting. And then we had the entrance of Ivy, which, you know, I knew was coming. I think Starling and Katana's reactions are right on. Ivy is an interesting choice on Dinah's part, and I do again wonder what Dinah's ethical beliefs are. I thought it was also a very interesting and cool design for Ivy, almost as if she were mimicking the season and taking on fall colors. I am, however, somewhat baffled with Ivy's line, Did you bring me takeout? Um, is she a man-eater? Anyways, overall, a Shui issue. Better than the first, and I'm really getting excited to see where Shuaz, um, that's what I like to call Dwayne Swarzynski, takes it. 8.5 out of 10 birds. And the final new issue of the month, Huntress number 2 of 6, Crossbow at the Crossroads. Writer Paul Levitz, Pensor Marcus Toe, Inker John Dell, Colorist Andrew Dollhouse. 
The issue opens with Huntress musing about the sanitation engineer's strike and the fact that the bad guys she has tied up at the end of the previous issue were killed before the policia arrested them. She thinks about all this as she breaks into police headquarters and looks for information on these bad guys. She finds out that the same undertaker picked up all the corpses and takes this to be more than a coincidence. She has to make a quick exit when the policia take notice of a light on in the office. Elsewhere, Moretti takes the edge off his bad day with a young girl, then gets upset during a phone call, constantly trying to make the leather type out to be no big deal. As he ends the phone call, he promises to kill Huntress when next she appears and promises a great visit for the chairman. At the Undertaker's home slash place of business, the Undertaker is preparing Mr. Moretti's boys when Huntress comes in and threatens to shoot his cojones if he doesn't tell her all about his dead friends. The next day, Helena is in a restaurant with her two new reporter friends discussing Moretti. Helena wonders why he has not been taken down yet when she finds out that everything in Italy is connected and those connections need to be severed in order to get the job done. As Helena leaves the cafe, Alessandro tells her that a leather-clad masked woman has been rumored to be at a hotel. Rumors often have a hint of truth in them. That night, Huntress goes back to the shipyards, finds some girls in the holding tank of a ship, and goes to work. She is patient and waits for the girls to be let off the ship before taking out the guards, blowing up the ship, and hijacking a bus in order to drive the girls to safety. Later, Helena on a motorcycle at Moretti's place tails an unexpected vehicular entourage of Moretti. She sees him at the coast loading a boat with supplies and girls. She may not have a shot now, but Helena will see Moretti soon as she shoots a tracking device onto the side of the boat. Okay, first and foremost, the art, again, it's wonderful. Whether the scene is dark or light, all elements are clear. I also love the fact that the art, in many ways, really mimics what's being said or what's going on. Like the undertaker crossing his legs when Huntress threatens his manhood, or when the pastry cake in the cafe illustrates what needs to happen in order to end Moretti's crimes. I love how the issue connects to the end of the previous issue, but starts off with our main character. I like to see Helena using her smarts and finding information on her own. I mean, what else can she do with no oracle in existence? There are fun touches throughout, like Helena eating a policeman's la gliatelle and thinking about only the poor substitutes in Gotham, or talking about the current events in Italy and their impact. Levitz does a great job really getting readers to dislike Moretti with everything the man says or does. That first scene really cinched it for me, for sure. I found Moretti's conversation on the phone to be a little confusing, however. I liked how Levitz was creative in only showing one side of the conversation, but it was a little difficult to follow. I like Helena's new friends, the reporters, and I almost wish we could just have a Huntress ongoing series take place in Italy because it already seems like she has a great cast of characters with her. Something I found really interesting was the page where Helena's narration was in all caps. Now this was either a mistake or intended to show her thoughts slash anger screaming in her head since this was all going on when she was um, seeing the girls in the, the hold of the ship. But it was certainly a nice touch if this was the case. And speaking of her narration, in contrast to, you know, the narration found in, in Detective Comics number 2 and Batwing number 2, the narration is not repetitious and seems pertinent with every word. We learn more about Helena and the story with each box. I like to see Hentress having fun with her crime fighting without going overboard. She makes witty comments and thinks on her feet. She's also caring, and this, you know, case really brings that out. I thought it was fun to see Huntress driving a yellow cheese with an explosion behind her. That was just a great panel. 
I like the ending, once again showing Helena's control, her patience, her smart thinking, and dedication to this case. I do wonder what Helena was thinking when she was originally at Moretti's place, since she was so surprised that Moretti was leaving. I mean, what was her plan? What was she going to do? This story is continuing on a great path, and I'm so glad that the issues are being used efficiently and not wasting pages. 9.5 out of 10 cannolis. Let the world know how good this series is so that people actually buy it. Okay, last mm, episode, I was going to say last month, that, that would also be true, I gave you a background number one review from Ori, and this month I've got another background number one review by Jordan Radcliffe here. So, uh, again, someone who liked it, a new reader. So this is what Jordan has to say. I would like to start by saying that I don't have much history uh, with Batgirl. I read Batgirl Year One, and I know a little bit about Oracle, but I'm no expert. Like all the new DC comics, Batgirl starts by jumping right into the story. The book opens with the introduction of a new villain called the Mirror. It seems like he goes around and kills those who have escaped death, usually killing them in a manner befitting the death they escaped. After the prologue, we are then shown what is likely a normal night for a masked vigilante, swinging around rooftops, beating up murderers. Except Barbara's internal dialogue scattered throughout the scene tells us that she has been out for some time and that her confidence may have slipped. In order to avoid having the star character in a wheelchair, the writers came up with some miracle, which gave Barbara her ability to walk back after spending some time in a wheelchair. A bit later, we are introduced to Barbara's new roommate, a bartending activist who likes to hug. During the final scene in the book, Batgirl arrives at the hospital, where the mirror is attempting to kill another person on his list. Though she talks tough, Batgirl totally freezes when a gun is pointed at her, triggering a flashback to the night she was shot by the Joker. The mirror is able to shove his victim out the window several stories up, and one of the cops declares Batgirl a murderer and points a gun at her. The book has plenty of action to lure in new readers, but old readers may not react well to the new personality of Barbara Gordon. The uber-confident young woman we knew is gone, and is replaced by the slightly more weary one, though this may just be a side effect of being back on the streets after getting shot in the spine. Some of the dialogue was awkward, especially the things in Barbara's head, and all the interactions with her new roommate. I found the mirror to be interesting, given our brief time with him, and I am interested to see what he has planned for Barbara. Despite awkward dialogue and some personality issues, I am hopeful for the future of Batgirl. 8 out of 10. So there are some people out there that, you know, they are enjoying Batgirl, and I'm hopeful that it's going to get better for us old readers. And I suppose hope is all I have. I put on my blue power ring. Next up is Babs in the Tube, uh, the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently I am watching the 1966 Batman TV series. Here we have episode 105, season 3, episode 11, The Londinium Larcenies. It aired November 23rd, 1967, two days after my birthday, but I wasn't born yet. Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Lynn Peters as Prudence, Harvey Jason as Scudder, Larry Anthony as Digby, Olayda Rotel as Daisy, Nanette Turner as as Sheila, Stacy Gregg as Rosamond, Lindley Lawrence as Kit, Glennis Johns as Lady Penelope Peasoup, Rudy Valley as Lord Marmaduke Fogg, and Gilchrist Stewart as The Bobby. 
After stealing the Queen's collection of snuff boxes from a Londonian museum, Lord Marmaduke Fogg and his sister Lady Penelope Peasoup escape in a thick fog. Ireland Yard calls in Ireland Yard really calls in Batman and Robin to solve the mystery, and Barbara Gordon is eager to accompany them. The Caped Crusaders interested in comparing Lord Fogg's aftergrass with that of Wayne Manor. While at the Fogg estate, Robin warns from Fogg's daughter, Lady Prudence, that her father and her aunt, Lady Pusoup, operate a school for Lady Crooks under the guise of a girls' finishing school. The unimpressed Fogg vows to steal the crown jewels from the Tower of Londinium. Batman and Robin manage to bring the Batmobile and Batcomputer to Londinium and preserve their secret identities all at the same time by packing them into crates and passing them off as Dick Grayson's desk and books, and then reassemble them in a Batcave-like space beneath a rented manor. During the dynamic duo's visit at the estate with Ireland Yard Superintendent Watson, Barbara Gordon slips off to contact Alfred and have him meet her at the road leading to the estate, where she changes into Batgirl or outfit brought by the butler. Later, upon leaving the Fogg estate, the dynamic duo are set upon by Fogg's servants, Scudder, Basil, and Digby, disguised as highwaymen, but are aided by Batgirl, who arrives in time to help root the ruffians, and then leaves as suddenly as she arrived. Batman and Robin return to the Londinian Batcave and are ambushed with the noxious fog bomb planted by Fogg's servants. Oh, and that is how it ends. Yes, very abruptly. So, the Babs' Batgirl syndrome is totally all over this episode. No one realizes that Babs and Batgirl are one and the same when they both are appearing in England. Oh, how many times has this happened before? How about Batman and Robin, for that matter? I actually really like this episode because it had more exposition than action. It really sets itself up to be a spy story with lots of intrigue. I was a little disappointed that the girls are only shoplifters rather than a league of assassins. I thought that would be pretty cool. I find the cast of this episode rather amusing, as well as the fact that Batman packed up the entire Batcave to take to England. The ruffians that Batman and Robin fight at the end are certainly interesting. I mean, are they going to do this thing or just talk about it? The one guy even looks like John Lennon. And this, of course, connects to the beginning when Dick is banging on the drums with a wig, just like Ringo Starr. Oh man, I hope Bertone sees this app. Batgirl changing in a bush is priceless, it's certainly like a real comic. But, you know, for some reason I just thought this episode and story seemed stronger than the ones involving Batman's main gaggle of enemies. I would love... I guess I would have loved to see a hero in England um, that could have teamed up with bats, but, you know, I guess this is no Batman Inc. So, great episode overall. I'll be, I'm interested to see how it all turns out. Okay, and now it is that special time, Shipper Spotlight. I love shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let, let, let me tell you about shippers. <laughs> get over get get over your own shipping bullshit. Shipper. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Stop talking Ship ship shippers. I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick 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 and Babs. Batman and Cat Catwoman. There we go, for the shippers, Batman's Mary to the Joker, to the Joker. There better not be Damien, Seth, Seth, Stephanie, shippers, I'll kill them. Dick and Babs. 
And this is where, under two minutes, I pick out a, a particular shipper. I highlight it. I tell you what the first hint of romance was. And hot or not, basically. And this was recommended by Donovan, Lady Shiva, and Tim Drake. First Hint of Romance, Tim's first mini, A Hero Reborn, written by Chuck Dixon, art by Tom Lyle, where she actually trains him in martial arts and takes an interest in him. A very ambiguous interest, giggity giggity. And he is 13 or 14 years old. She then returns in Robin number 50 and 51, where they run into each other again, and Tim is drugged with super speed. He accidentally killed her, revived her with the kiss of life, and that inadvertently gives her super speed. Whoa, boy. Kiss of life. That's Those are the key words right there. So hot or not, man, I may like my dick and babs, but at least they got together when he was legal. This is too much like cradle robbing for my taste. Plus, Lady Shiva is evil. Hot or not, not. Quickly, I'd like to give my literary recommendation, Astonishing X-Men. The Run 1 through 24 by Josh Whedon and John Cassidy. Oh man, so amazing. I've really been getting into the character of Kitty Pride, and this was just great. It was, of course, a sad ending. I was really depressed. But just well written, great stories. Totally recommend that. This episode ends the year of 1976. The best from that year, I would definitely say, was Batman Family Number 1, The Invader from Hell. And the worst, I would actually say, which is kind of funny because of all those letters that everyone loved it, Batman Family Number 7, 13 points to a dead end. I can't believe so many people enjoy that story. As always, send any questions or comments to Oracle at gmail.com. Continue to sign the petition to get Batgirl Year 1 back into production. Guess what? 744 signatures. Uh, you can go to it, www.gopetition.com slash petition slash backroll dash year dash one dot html once again thanks to mile high comics for sponsoring batgirl to oracle the barbara gordon podcast thanks also to donovan for the shipper spotlight recommendation thanks also to tv.com for the episode summary for the londinium larcenies on the horizon next month is bto's two-year anniversary it's not going to be a call in this year but be ready for a jam-packed episode But until then, have a great Thanksgiving, and fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. I love a happy ending, don't you?